Hey, Cornerstone Church, how's everybody doing today? Come on. So let, let's just right out of the gate here. That was a little bit of a golf clap here in Chandler, Scottsdale, Santan. Let's all together, man. Let's praise God today. Let's put our hands together. Thank God that we're breathing, that we're alive, that it's Christmas season. So great to see everyone. Uh, and for everyone at the Santan and the Scottsdale campus, as well as everyone in the venue right here in Chandler, all of us in the Chandler Auditorium want to thank you for allowing us to be part of your experience this morning. My name is Scott, but we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about Jesus, if that's okay with you. Okay, a few people here are okay with that. The rest are still not sure about that whole deal. Hey man, it's Christmas season. And I want to encourage you at every single location, think of someone right now. Just think of someone who you know needs to know Christ. And I know most of you are thinking about your in-laws. It doesn't matter who they are. Invite them to Cornerstone at your campus for a Christmas Eve service. Because it's going to be awesome. It's going to be fun. You're going to have great music. You're going to have a great experience. Most of all, every single person walking out of every single campus is going to know without any uncertainty who Christ is because Lynn's going to be teaching. And you know that when he talks about Jesus, it's pretty clear who Christ is. So make sure you invite someone to a Christmas Eve service. Today, we're just wrapping up a really short two-week series called BCAD. And what we did last week is we just kicked it off by, by acknowledging the reality, the fact that every time we refer to our calendar and the date on the calendar, we are in, in a way, acknowledging the greatest moment in the history of the world. In fact, the moment that changed history, and that was the birth of Christ. Because our calendar, the one that we use, the unofficial global calendar, the Gregorian calendar, is basically measures every day either before the birth of Christ, B.C., or since the birth of Christ, A.D. And we're always acknowledging that there was a moment in history where not only our calendar was developed, but that changed everything. But the big question we're asking is, has that story has the birth of Christ changed our life? Has the birth of Christ, the moment that changed history, has it changed our story? And if you weren't here last week, just read this week, read Ephesians chapter 2, because that's where we camped out. And we really unpack this reality that every one of us has a BC story or a life before Christ. But not all of us have an AD story or a story about our life after receiving Christ. In, in our BC condition, kind of our spiritual condition before giving our life to Him, scriptures was really, is real clear in Ephesians 2. It says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. In the way that we live, in how we live. But then it goes on to say, but God in His great love, basically in His mercy, He didn't give us what we deserved. And by his grace, he gave us what we didn't deserve, and that was forgiveness. And then it goes on to say in Ephesians how he's lavishing his kindness on us through Christ. And we realize that, man, we all have a BC story, but the, really the step to moving away from that into a life of Christ is the cross and celebrating who he is and worshiping him uh, during this season and every day of our life. Today, we're going to wrap it up by uh, my, my goal is to give every single one of you a gift. 
Every single one of you in Scottsdale, every single one of you in Santan, everyone in the venue right now, everyone in Chandler, back here in the overflow room, I want to give you a gift, but I have to make a pretty honest confession. As if there's such a thing as a dishonest confession, right? But I want to make a confession. This, this gift that I want to give each of you, that I hope you receive, it's, uh, it's not new. Actually, it's, it's used. Sorry. It's not even gently used. It's pretty worn. In fact, the cool thing about this gift is the more it's worn, the more it's used, the better it gets. It just keeps on giving. And some of you might be thinking, oh man, I was here last week and Scott told us about what he thought was the greatest gift he ever received as a kid. Is he going to give that away today? That was my Huffy Thunderstar Bicentennial Edition bike. You can see it on the screen. No, I'm not giving that bike away. In fact, I think that's in like bicycle heaven. I don't know whatever happened to that bike, where it went. Um, I can't give you that. Maybe you're thinking, okay, well, maybe he's going to give us another gift that was really cool for him in his childhood. No, I'm not going to give my Sony Walkman to you. I can't do that. How many of you were alive when the Sony Walkman came out? How many, how many of you don't even know what I'm talking about? You're like, what? Walking where? And you, a gal, this, a girl held up her phone when she raised her hand. That was the beginning of what you're holding on to right there, the Sony Walkman. No, I'm not going to be able to give that to you. And I'm not going to give you what was perhaps the second greatest gift I ever received as a kid on Christmas. That was my Evil Knievel wind-up toy. You are not going to get that. In fact, I couldn't give that to you because I, I once left it laying in the driveway. And my dad backed over it in our car. And not only did it crush evil. It, that, that's kind of funny, actually. Not only did he crush evil, but he broke my heart, and I've been in therapy ever since, trying to recover from the pain of losing my wind-up toy. Now, that's not the gifts that I want to give you today, but what I want to give you is something that is alluded to in the Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible with you, turn there, scroll to it. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have it up on the screen for you here in a moment. But I always encourage you, bring your Bible to church. Isn't that a novel idea that we'd actually be able to navigate God's word on our own? But again, if you don't have it, it's on the screen for you, so you can go read it later. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says he, regarding Jesus, died for who? Everyone. So just know, regardless of where you are in your faith or what you believe or don't believe, the fact is Jesus died for you. And for me, he died for everyone so that those who receive his new life, those who go from BC into AD in the context of this conversation, he died for everyone. So those who receive new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. The gift I want to give you today is an opportunity. And the opportunity is what we're going to call surrender. Everybody say surrender. Surrender is a gift that God has given us. And you think about it in the Christmas season, we so often and and rightly think about Christ as Savior. It's on our Christmas cards. It's in our Christmas carols. It's all over you. Christ the Savior has come. And the truth is that believing in Christ as Savior does change our story. 
It changes our eternal destination. It changes our ability to have a relationship with our creator. It changes so much of our story, believing Christ as savior. However, Jesus as savior is also Jesus the Lord. And as much as believing in Christ as Savior changes our story, surrendering to Christ as Lord changes our life. And surrender is the gift that God has given us. And I think about how do I describe this somewhat ambiguous word called surrender? And, uh, you know, I can think of the, the television show where the, the police officer's like, freeze, hold your hands up in the air, you know, that kind of thing. But I want here's, here's a picture of surrender for you. Uh, several years ago, when our family moved to the Northern California area, which is where Shelly and I and our three kids live, um, we're about 90 minutes out, uh, outside of, away from Lake Tahoe. And so, uh, east of Sacramento, about 90 minutes from Lake Tahoe. And the first time we went up to Lake Tahoe, it was in the middle of summer. And if you've never been to Tahoe, do yourself a favor and go. It's spectacular. It's just beautiful. And we're at Lake Tahoe in the middle of summer and the kids have their swimsuits on and we go to this beach and I'm like, go on, let's go in and let's go swimming. And they come, you know, running up to the thing and, and they kind of step in the water and they're like, oh, they kind of do that deal. They reel backwards. I'm like, what's, what's going on? Well, many of you know that Tahoe is simply a 1600 foot deep basin full of melted snow. And so they stepped in the water and in the middle of summer, it was like 60 degrees and they just jumped right out. And I thought, oh, come on, Shelly, have you really raised our kids to be such wussies? Come on, let's, let's do this thing. So I go up, step in the water. I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's a little cold, but come on guys, we can do it. So I go and I stand in the water just up, just past my ankles. And I'm like, come on, it's not so bad. And I'm literally, my ankles are starting to hurt because it's so cold. And the kids would go out and they kind of go in and they'd step back out. And so I thought, man, you got to go all the way in, in Tahoe. Come on guys, go all the way, go all the way under. And, and they're like, I'm not going in there. And I told them, I said, just think of the story you'd have to tell that you went to Tahoe and you went right in all the way under. And they're like, I'm not going all the way in. So that didn't motivate them at all. So I had to motivate them a different way. I said, okay, here's the deal. If you will go in and go all the way under, I'll give each of you 10 bucks. That water turned warm like that. It was amazing. It wasn't 30 seconds later, every one of our three kids was under the water and then having a blast I was out 30 bucks, but they quickly got used to it and they had a blast swimming. They went all in. That's a picture in my mind I think about when it comes to surrender. When we look at Christ and he calls us to a life of surrender, so often, so many of us, and we all do this in different ways, we're just kind of like, okay, Jesus, I believe in you. You are Christ the Savior. I'm forgiven. I'm on my way to heaven. Thank you that you love me and I get to go to church and not feel so uncomfortable because I'm one of them. Okay. Okay, good. I just, oh, but it's, you want me to go further in my faith? You want, oh, that's, oh, that's, that's uncomfortable. You want more of my, my life to be surrendered to you? Oh, Jesus. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. And I want to just have us go all in today. I want you to go under your head for Jesus. I'm not going to give you 10 bucks. All right. Not gonna. But I want to encourage us to consider 
What does a life of surrender look like? Because he died for everyone so that those of us who receive the new life he gives would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Turn over to Mark chapter 8, because I think Jesus really synthesizes this whole thing of surrender quite clearly and in a challenging way. Uh, Mark 8, verse 34 through 37, it says, and I'm reading, I'm reading out the New Living Translation. It says, then calling, to the, calling the crowd to join his disciples. So pause right there, because we're going to start and stop in this text for a couple of minutes. So Jesus has all these people that are following him. I mean, he was quite the spectacle. The dude is, has walked on water. He's turning water into wine. He's, he's performing miracles. He's multiplying food for thousands of people. Not only this, these miracles, but everything he would say and teach was profound. It was profound because it was eternal truth. And so there are people who are following him, who are hoping he's the coming Messiah, but at minimum have embraced him as his great teacher, this great rabbi. And so they are his disciples. But not only are his disciples following and gathering around, the crowd is all around. And so Jesus, he doesn't just speak to those who are kind of convinced. He also calls in the curious. He doesn't just speak to those who believe in who he is. He also calls those who have yet to believe who he is. So it says he calls the crowd to join his disciples. And he said this really popular, seeker-sensitive, Christmas Christian message that doesn't want to step on toes. I'm trying to be sarcastic and it never comes off right. (laughs) Jesus says, if any of you crowd or disciples, curious or convinced, if any of you wants to be my follower, you should probably consider, you're not paying attention, are you? What's he say? You, oh, he's so insensitive. You must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. Scott still say this with us. Let's say, let's all say this together. Say, turn from, take up, follow me. Verse 35, and then he says something that's really interesting. If you try, everybody say try. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. It's as if Jesus is saying this. Okay, I've come to give you new life. But you have to turn from your old life. But if you try to to pursue this new life while trying to hang on to the old life, he didn't say if you do hang on to the old life. He says if you try. You can't do it. It's as if he's saying, you know what? If you want this new life I have to give, but you want to hold on to the old life that I'm taking you from, you're not going to have either. But you can try, but it just won't work. And then he goes on and he says this. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the good news, you will save it. Isn't it interesting that everything God calls us to is voluntary? He doesn't pry out of our hands anything we're holding on to. He calls us to give up for his sake. If you give up your life for my sake and for the good news, you'll save it. Verse 36. And then it's as if he says, just think logically with me here. Even for those of you who don't believe, think logically. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul. What do you achieve if you acquire everything in life, but at the end of the day, 
if God is real and eternity is real and you miss out on that, what do you gain? And then he says, is anything worth more than your soul? I tried to paint a picture of what surrender kind of looks like, going all the way, going under, past our discomfort. But let me give you um, an attempt at a definition of what I've come up with with surrender. I think surrender is holding loosely, sometimes even letting go, to what's temporary, while making a priority of what's eternal. Just holding loosely, maybe letting go of what's temporary, while grabbing on or making a priority of what's eternal. You think, okay, what is that then? What what does that, I get the Tahoe picture going in, freezing my tail off, but enjoying it once I get used to it. I get the little definition, but what, what, what in my life does surrender, where does it break down into my life? Here's what I think about it. If you could picture three buckets or three big containers up here on the stage. And the first container is the surrender of sin. The second container would be the surrender of stuff. And then the last container is the surrender of self. Let me try to explain these for just a moment. The surrender of sin. Before I gave my life to Jesus, I was a happy sinner. I was gifted at it. I was really good at it. And to be quite honest with you, most of the sin that my life was about was really fun. Until I got busted or somebody got hurt. But it was really fun. I mean, it it was a blast. But when I gave my life to Christ, whenever I would dabble in that same sin, it wasn't fun anymore. I felt kind of yuck about it. I felt this conviction that it just wasn't good for me anymore, which is really one of the evidences of that new life Christ gives us is when we dabble in the, the sin of the old life, it just feels a little dirty. The, the lying at the office to get the deal. Just, just something in it like, oh I, just, I, oh, I don't feel right anymore. The, the lifestyle that we were living in pleasure. And maybe, maybe it was sexual relationship outside of marriage. And it was a blast. And you never even thought anything about it. But now you're like, oh, I just feel, even before I get there, I, I just feel something wrong in me. That's called conviction and that's the spirit of God doing what he does in us and he calls us to surrender that sin some of it's easy well don't murder you know don't punch somebody but it's the stuff that doesn't hurt people that can kind of be our greatest enemy because the consequences aren't immediate but the sin every every sin regardless if it hurts someone else or we get busted it always hurts our relationship with God In fact, King David, who's described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, had quite a life of sin as well. One time, he's the peeping Tom, and he sees Bathsheba taking a shower or a bath on top of the roof or whatever that looked like. And then he ends up sleeping with her, realizes she's married, so he concocts this plan to have her husband killed. So he commits adultery, kills her husband so that he can marry her, and God convicts him to the core. Here's what David said. You can just read this, or let me read it to you. You can read it later. In Psalm 51, verse 10 and 12, reeling in remorse, filled with conviction because of his sin, 
David said, create in me a clean heart, O God. You see that sense of, I feel just dirty about this. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You see, when we don't surrender our sin, we don't experience the joy that comes from following Christ because we're conflicted and convicted. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. It's just that surrendering of our sin. God wants us to be close with him, to be tight with him, and sin just gets in the way. And then there's the surrendering of our stuff. Psalm 24 verse 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's all his. And I'm not going to spend much time on this. I know Lynn has taught some of this in a previous series called The Test. But why is it? you ever wonder why Jesus in the whole, the totality of Scripture addresses possessions and money? I think one of the reasons is, is because it's the great rivalry of the heart. Growing up in Michigan, I'm a Michigan State Spartan fan. However, the great rivalry is U of M and Ohio State. And thank goodness it's been rekindled. It's a great rivalry. Maybe there's, a, there's other rivalries like Alabama, Auburn, Florida, Florida State. Maybe you know, ASU and you know, U of A, whatever. The great rivalries, we have it inside of us. And it's the rivalry of the heart. And I think Jesus continually points it out. And he's basically saying, stuff isn't bad. I'm going to sound cliche here. But when it has you, it's bad. Because it gets in our way of him. And he wants us to surrender our stuff. At least just hold it loosely. Because it's temporary. So we have the surrender of sin. And the surrender of stuff. And then here's the biggie. The surrender of self. The challenge with surrender of self. Is that we can, we can do a pretty good job at surrendering our sin. And even a pretty good job at surrendering our stuff. And being generous. And we can look like. And they're all good. We can look to those around us like really good Christians. But the dark side is we haven't surrendered ourselves, And this is often the more difficult place that God calls us to. The surrendering of ourself and the way that he shapes our character to be honest and God-honoring. He shapes our integrity and even our identity in who we are. And basically when we begin to surrender ourselves. To him, we stop trying to be God in our life and we bow to the God of our life. We stop trying to please others and prove our worth to those around us and we rest in the fact that we can live because of who God says we are and not trying to please everyone else in the world. And when we go to our family gatherings and our office Christmas parties during the holiday season and say our, our, our cousins or our uncles or our in-laws start chattering about all of our weaknesses and our deficiencies, we can just rest in patience and peace going like, yeah, I know, but isn't God good? Because I'm living from who he says I am, not who you say I am. I am imperfect, but I'm going to surrender myself to him. I don't have to prove who I am. I don't have to walk in constant insecurity because God loves me and I'm his. It's that part of surrender that gives us life. Jesus didn't come to save us, just save us from our sin. He came to set us free from ourselves. So we surrender our sin, our stuff.
in ourself. Let me read Mark 8, one verse real quick. It says this. Again, it says, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. He says in a, in a different place in Luke 14, he unpacks this, this, kind of this analogy that's pretty challenging. And basically, here, here's what it says. I'm not going to read it verbatim, but I'll, I'll quote a couple pieces of it. In Luke 14, verse 28 through 33, speaking of all of this kind of thing, okay, in the context of following him, Jesus says, but don't begin until you count the cost. Isn't that interesting? We have on one side of our faith this great truth, saved by grace, through faith. It's not of works, lest any man would boast. There is nothing we can do to be loved and forgiven by God outside of giving our life to Christ as Savior. It's all free. It's all by grace. No religion, no performance. On the other side of our faith is this tension of surrender. Not for performance for God, but because he wants to bring us into fullness of life. And Jesus says, don't fail to count the cost before you begin. Because it will cost us something to experience all God wants to do in our life. And then he says this. There's a guy who's going to construct a building. And he didn't sit down to calculate all the cost it would take. So he just was able to build a foundation. But once he got the foundation laid, people came around, his friends and stuff, and began to laugh at him. Like, hey, dude, weren't you going to build that building? All I see is concrete and some plumbing pipes. And that's just the foundation. Where are you going to go with this? And then he says, oh, it's like a king who's going to go off to war. And he knows that the other king has 20,000 troops. Well, he only has 10,000. He might want to sit down and reconsider. And maybe realizing he's outmanned, send for some peace. And then he wraps up this analogy in the last verse and says, So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Man, that's strong, isn't it? You cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Part of me on the inside is screaming right now, relieve the tension. So you cannot be my disciple unless you give up everything you own. You know what's crazy about this? Is that when we give up everything we own to put Christ first, it doesn't mean that we lose everything we own. It doesn't mean we have to give away everything we own. It just means that we're holding it very loosely because it's temporary. Let's surrender our sin and our stuff and ourself, holding it loosely because the reward of surrender is fullness of life that Jesus came to give us. Several years ago, I was, uh, my family and I, another, another lake story, this is not Tahoe, uh, in northern Michigan, we were at a friend, some friend's cottage at the lake, and um, we went inner tubing. You know what I'm talking about? Inner tube, like hook up the inner tubes behind the boat and go flying all over. Super, super fun. But that day, I did something that was really stupid. 
I get in the inner tube and someone was next to me. I honestly don't even remember who it was. I'm in the inner tube and I said to the driver, my friend named Al, I said, Al, I'll bet you can't throw me off this tube. And I kid you not, he loves Jesus. But at that moment, I saw the devil enter his soul. And he looked at me like a crazed maniac on a mission. So we took off and he's playing it cool for, you know, around around the lake. And, you know, we're kind of the thing and, you know, going across the wake and and all this stuff. And then after a little bit, he starts to gun it. And we start going across that lake. And you've ever been air tubing and you're going really fast. Your teeth chatter in your mouth. You're like, and your bones are shaking. And I'm like, oh, oh man. And you just know he's, he's gearing up to toss me. And so then he starts to just kind of do this a little. And we're kind of, and I'm holding on. I'm telling you, man, I'm holding on for my life. I thought, I don't want to meet you, Jesus, right now. I mean, I got some kids to raise here. And I'm flying across the lake. And then after that, he turns hard left. So it's your left. What's that mean? I go around the right side of that boat about a zillion miles an hour. I'm not kidding you, man. And I hit a wave. It's like, I hit a wave with a boosh. And I was like the cow jumping over the moon. I'm telling you. I couldn't see myself, but it felt like an out-of-body experience. I mean, in a fraction of a second, I'm processing this. I'm in the air. He wins. And in a moment, I'm going to hit that nice soft, cushy water. How many of you know that that didn't happen? I hit that water and it felt like a slab of concrete, man. Bam! And I, I, you know, skipped like a little pebble across the water. And right when I hit the water, I not only, I mean, to feel that, oh, it was like, bam, I heard this crack. And it was right back in the back of my neck. And I felt a, a, like a, a surge of electricity just woof, Right through to the bottom of my feet, literally. And I come to rest in the water. And in that moment, I'd never honestly been thankful for a life preserver. But it was in that moment, I'm laying there and on my back, just, and I can't even move. And I thought, you know, if I didn't have a life jacket on right now, I would sink. And so, you know, the boat eventually starts turning around to come back and get me. I'm laying there, I'm like, okay. This rule hurts really bad. Did I break something? And I start to move a little bit. So obviously I didn't break anything. And as the boat's coming toward me, I kind of, I kind of flip over and I just, I couldn't swim very much. I started to do the doggy paddle. Like, hey, just kind of pretending because he threw me off. I didn't want him to know that he won this deal. Like, so I'm like, hey, I'm dying on the inside. This is awesome, you know? And I climb up on the boat and I'm sitting in the back of that boat in this little landing thing. And I have two thoughts. One, don't ever mock the one who controls your fate. I thought, lesson learned. But the bigger one for our conversation was I told myself, I should have let go sooner. I should have just let go. And I can guarantee if you're anything like me, there's a whole bunch of us sitting here right now in Scottsdale and Santan and in the venue and right here in Chandler and you got white knuckles. You believe in Christ. He's your savior. But you've yet to surrender to him as your Lord.
And Jesus said, we can try to hold on to him. And we can try to hold on to the old life. And we can try, but it just doesn't work. I want to challenge you and encourage you today. Let go. Hold it loosely. For some of us, that bucket of sin is our issue. You know who you are because God's at work. He's speaking to you right now. Not condemning you. Just encouraging you. Repent. Turn away from it. And let me empower you to go in a new direction. For others of us, it's the stuff. It's the holding on to our stuff. Believing that if we hold on to 100%, we're going to be okay. And we can't trust God with living off 90% or 80% or 50% or whatever that is. We're holding on. And God's just saying, man, I got... I want, I, want you to, I want you to experience the joy that comes from letting go. For probably all of us, there's something about our, our self that we haven't surrendered. And this is the part that always agitates us. Always frustrates us. Let it go. Let God create your identity. Let him be the God of your life in my life. And let go from trying to control everything trying to always win, trying to manipulate our scenarios. Trust him. Trust him. Stop trying to prove who you are and who I am to those around us. They already see our weaknesses. Let it go. Surrender is holding loosely to what's temporary, even letting go and prioritizing what's eternal. Christ is Savior. He's also Lord. He's the boss. Let's surrender to him. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for this great reminder, especially during this time of year. Jesus, you are the savior of the world, and we are so thankful for that, that we sit here, wherever we may be, just given the, the ability to rest in your grace, proving nothing to you. But God, at the same time, you're calling us to a life of surrender. And God, before we step into eternity, may we be those who hold things loosely while we're grabbing on to Christ and life in him so that we may experience fullness of joy and fullness of life. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And if you agree, you can say, amen.